Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is about a very important issue, and that's one of homelessness and the wonderful work that is being done in Orange County, California. And we are so pleased that we're going to be speaking with the Honorable Jim Palmer, who is doing wonderful work with helping people who are really in need, and especially in the holiday season. Let me tell you a little bit about Jim. Jim was born and raised in Orange County, California. And it's always a treat for me because we interview people from all over the country, and it's especially wonderful when we can interview experts in our own county here in California. He spent most of his childhood at the Boys and Girls Club in Newport Beach, California, and at the age of 14, Jim felt called to rescue those who are less fortunate, and he has done all that through his life. He was elected to the Tustin City Council in uh, November of 2006, and he currently serves the citizens of Tustin, California, through his service on the Orange County Library Board, the Santa Ana River Flood Protection Agency, and much more. He has quietly served on over 42 different nonprofit as board of, as one of the board of directors, and he has served seniors, veterans, children, families who are sick, and those who are hurting. And he has been on radio talk shows with people as popular as Dr. Laura, so we're real special to have him on with us as well. He is the president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, the OCRM. This is the county's most comprehensive private homeless services provider. And Jim has worked to create the long-term self-sufficiency and stability among our county's homeless by going far beyond temporary solutions to address the underlying causes of transitional and chronic homelessness. Believing in a hand up rather than a hand out philosophy, Jim has worked to effectuate systematic changes and he empowers people who have been homeless into getting their lives back and getting into affordable housing and health care. And he addresses such issues as mental illness, drug and alcohol addiction, HIV, AIDS, literacy, and so much more. He has done absolutely tremendous work for our county. I could go on and on to tell you about what a great leader he is, but I would rather just have you hear from him all the great work he's doing. And, you know, you might be saying to yourself, well, what is this all about privacy? Marion, you know, has people on with privacy and information privacy. There are many types of privacy, and the issues of privacy in terms of living in a group setting, the issues living in a situation where you're homeless, all of those affect um, the the important issues of privacy in the information age. So without further ado, I want to thank you so much, Jim, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Mari, for inviting me. Well, you are uh, a hero for us in, in Orange County, and, I, and I'm so pleased 
also because I know you're active in the Orange County Sheriff's Department as well as I am, and we all just think you are top-notch. So let's get started. And for those listeners who, who may not be familiar with the Orange County Rescue Mission, can you tell us about the mission itself and the philosophy and, and just how you got started? Sure. The Rescue Mission has been around since 1963 when a former tech sergeant from the Tustin Marine Corps Air Station, uh, Lewis Whitehead, decided to retire from the Marines. He had worked in the kitchen operations and decided that he wanted to feed those that had no food. And back in 1963, the homeless in Orange County were predominantly white alcoholic men. And uh, that became the core group that he went after and actually set up an operation in Santa Ana that in 1981 grew into its own facility. And um, about 17 years ago, I started with the organization, and we took it from that one facility to facilities all over the county, including the Village of Hope in Tustin, and we have 17 homes in Buena Park and six in El Medina and a women and children's facility in the city of Orange and a number of medical clinics and a, a ranch operation. And we're able to reach out to a little over 19,000 people a year that are either homeless or on the verge of becoming homeless in Orange County with all different types of assistance from counseling to mental health to the medical clinics we offer, financial planning, shelter, food, clothing, just about everything you need to get back on your feet. Well, I was so impressed when I had the opportunity to to come and get a tour of the Village of Hope. It is so beautiful. How exactly did you get it together to build such a, and this is just, it's only been been there just what, two years? Is it even two years? Yeah, it, it's just been open for about two years. This is actually a 14-year project, which sounds a little crazy, and I'm I'm amazed I even lived through it, but... <laughs> Working with government, especially the federal and the local levels, uh, is a big challenge. And back when they announced the closing of this about 15 years ago, the military base in Tustin, they invited nonprofit organizations to apply for some of the land or buildings. And that's really where we started in the process. And we thought, you know, it's going to cost a couple million dollars maybe. We'll have to build a cafeteria and a few things. It ended up being a $33 million state-of-the-art project that was all totally privately paid for. No, no construction loans, no government grants or anything along those lines. So we were very excited after 14 years when the whole facility opened and Orange County ended up with the most comprehensive facility for homeless families in the country. It is so beautiful. And when you turn onto that street and it's One Hope Drive, it just it kind of touches your heart right away. You know, you just get that uh, exhilaration feeling like, look at this is one hope drive. Anyone coming in there and then seeing the beautiful facility, it's not depressing, it's enlightening, it's empowering, and it's just very inspiring. I, I have to tell you, it's great. So it's one of the most comprehensive homeless facilities in the entire country. So you said it was all privately funded. You know, how did you do that? Well, you know, it was interesting. Before we started the construction, we did a feasibility study and talked with foundations and fundraisers, and everybody said, wow, this is so needed. You shouldn't have any problem. And then we started the fundraising process, and it was hard to get people to write really large checks to help the homeless. People will write smaller checks to help feed or shelter, but for capital campaigns, it was really tough but then we had a lot of hurdles to jump through, so it took us quite a few years. And through that process, brought on more and more supporters to ultimately raise about $12 million in cash. And then the rest was donated through labor and materials, primarily through our own uh, Orange County Building Industry Association's nonprofit called Homemade. Wow. You know, I remember years ago, I was on the board of La Casa, which was an auxiliary to Orangewood. And I remembered at that time, many, many years ago, I mean, because now Orangewood has been around for what, 20 years or something. But I remember the old Albert sitting home for abused children. And it was horrible. We used to have our meetings in there. And it was so depressing. And it was so really uh, disheartening. And I, I felt it was disheartening for even kids coming into that 
workplace when they'd be taken away from their parents at night. And then, you know, Orangewood also was strongly supported by the community. It became a, you know, public-private venture. And again, the building industry in Orange County stepped up to the plate and donated so much. And that is also a gorgeous facility, which I know you know of. But yeah. that it, you know, we really do in Orange County. We we have, you know, people think of us across the nation. Oh, that's that's the city with the bankruptcy. But you know, the people here, they they really do care about the community. And I think that having a leader like you, Jim, is really you know important in being able to raise those funds and and get people to come on board. So, kudos to you. Well, thank you so much. It is interesting being an Orange County-based organization because while we are blessed with support and some interesting ways of supporting having the home industry sort of nationally headquartered here, it helps. But also the donors' expectations are different than throughout the country where, you know, expectation to help a homeless person is food and clothing. Here they want to see that person educated. They want to see them back on their feet and self-sufficient again. Yes. So uh, it's it's a neat place to be able to help people, that's for sure. Right. It's like that old adage, you know, uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, you know, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. And I know that really is the philosophy that you have as well. And yes. um, and it makes much so much more sense. I mean, even I think anyone listening to this can kind of even relate. You know, if you give your kids everything, and you never teach them how to do anything. They becomes they come crippled. They really become mm-hmm. crippled when they're older. So I have always had this philosophy, even when I was raising my own kids, you know, now they're in their 20s, but just, you know, to teach them how to do the things instead of mommy, do it for me, you know, no, we're going to learn how to do this. And I think that's so important because otherwise you don't have a good feeling about yourself. And, I, and I've seen that so many times when you just give things and give welfare, you're not really changing the society. So why don't you talk to us about the ultimate goal for your program and, and the residents who are now living in the facility? Yeah, really the ultimate goal is self-sufficiency, meaning that that once they graduate from our sort of boot camp training on how to get back on your feet, that they are back on their feet without having to use government funds, welfare, anything along those lines to stay self-sufficient. And in many cases, they turn around so significantly that they come back and volunteer or they help others that are out on the street get back on their feet. In fact, when I went on the tour of your facility, uh, the gentleman who was taking us introduced me to a couple of people who were now volunteering who had been there, who had lived there, who had gone through your program. Why don't you explain how your program actually works when somebody comes in? Can you kind of walk us through that? Sure. Yeah, for our what we used to call our new life program, which is sort of the the boot camp for those that have become homeless or literally, you know, living in their car, living on someone's couch, is uh, we bring them into our intake at the Village of Hope, sort of show them our approach to getting them back on their feet, and then really do an analysis of both their financial situation, any kind of legal issues they have in their background. We do a full physical health evaluation through our medical clinic and then a mental health evaluation. And for many people, this is the first time that anybody's put all four pieces together. And then with what comes back, we sit down and talk about what we could do to help them through that. And usually that's a a one-year process for a single adult and a two-year process uh, for an adult with children. And we literally just start knocking off each of the challenges and issues that might be there in the area of mental health or physical health or getting their credit back, uh, dealing with um, legal issues. You know, a lot of times people don't realize, but when you become homeless, you start living in your car, you'll actually get tickets from police officers because you're illegally sleeping in a parking lot in your car, things Mm. that... While they're out of your control, society still says, no, that's, that's wrong. Well, that simple ticket can turn into a warrant for your arrest because you haven't shown up to court because you have no money to give the judge for the ticket. And so we have to unwind a lot of that. And we've been fortunate to have a lot of partners out there. And we actually have a judge, Judge Lindley, who comes to our facility and holds an actual courthouse here every two weeks to process through some of the legal issues that need to be addressed. 
And then at the same time, we do the vocational training. We do the mental health evaluations on an ongoing basis because a lot of people have wounds in their life and challenges, and sometimes those things hold them back, so we try to free them up from those things. You know, and speaking about the fact that they have so many issues that you go over, like their legal issues and their mental health issues and their health issues, these are some privacy concerns. So how do you deal with some of those privacy issues in your your homeless guests? I'm glad you asked because it, it is a gigantic challenge uh, because many of these people have been taken advantage of or violated through the process. And uh, what we have done, because that need is so great, we've partnered with Trinity Law School, who's here in Orange County. They have actually set up a law school clinic here on site. And about half of the population we're working with at any time actually are receiving their free legal services and assistance uh, to unwind credit issues, to uh, deal with identity theft issues or the separation of identity and in the sense we might have a a woman that's been abused and and she has her kids here and how does she now set up her own credit and separate herself from uh, her former boyfriend or husband that was abusing her that had tied all their credit together and things like that. Right. And then you have all of these health issues of privacy as well. How about that? Well, that, that's pretty easy for us because we have a commitment to, to be as excellent as we can however we operate. So we were able to be an early adopter for electronic medical records. And the electronic medical record system allows us to keep people's medical information very private. And there's national standards now that govern the privacy. And so it actually put us a few steps ahead of most clinics in the fact that we were an early adopter to that level of security. Right, right. And, you know, I would think that when you are homeless and, like you said, you're living out of your car, you're not able to get mail or the mail. Where does it get forwarded to? Does, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is extremely tricky. So what we do is we allow them to use the One Hope Drive address here at the Orange County Rescue Mission so they can start developing um, the contacts they need and start receiving the information that they desperately need to put their lives back together again. So this is really their, their home. This... <laughs> it is. It's, it's not a quick fix. It, it really respects the fact that there's lots of challenges to getting back on their feet, and so we give them the time that's needed. As long as they're pulling up their bootstraps and moving forward, uh, they're allowed to stay here, and we continue to cover the cost of taking care of them. So at no time, for instance, are we asking them to borrow money for any part of the program. Uh, the donors totally provided at no cost to them. Wow. We are speaking with a wonderful hero in Orange County, California. We are speaking with the Honorable Jim Palmer. Jim is the president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, the country's the county's most comprehensive private homeless service provider. And he has been working. How long have you been, by the way, working with the, the homeless? Well, I'm lucky because at the age of 14, I really felt a calling to help a homeless family, and it's stuck with me ever since. Oh, my goodness. So this is, but how long have you been the president of the oh, organization? 17 years with the Orange County Rescue Mission as the president. Right. I think we just think of the Orange County Rescue Mission and Jim Palmer as one in itself, (laughs) one in the same. (laughs) So getting back to um, how do people come to you? You know, you're talking about certain conditions you have that they have to do, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but how do they come to you, and then how do they get accepted into the program? Well, they come to us, it's really... Word of mouth, uh, both homeless on the street are very aware of who we are because of our long-term existence in Orange County and a good reputation. Uh, churches, synagogues, city halls, police departments, schools all refer people to us. And then we have a team, an intake team, and it's actually made up of a couple uh, of our current clients that live at the Village of Hope and then a couple staff. And so what they do is they handle the phone calls, they'll set up the appointments, 
And what we do is like to get face-to-face with people here at the Village of Hope and, and sort of walk through their story and how they got where they are and, and what they think they need to be able to get out of the situation and then sort of come up with a mutual plan that we both think will work. And are there people who are rejected? Well, they're not really rejected. Typically what we see for someone that doesn't come into our program is somebody that doesn't want the scrutiny or the challenge of going into a boot camp environment. Um, For instance, everybody eats together in our facilities traditionally, and everything is monitored. And as you come and go through the facilities, you go out to, let's say, visit family or friends. When you come back and you're in the program, you actually get breathalyzed. We do random drug testing. There's a lot of supervision because we have a lot of people here and we've got a lot of children. So we have to create a very safe environment. And some people, they don't want to give up what they consider freedom out on the streets or living in their cars or maybe the drug abuse or addictions that they have. And in those cases, they excuse themselves. They they either decide not to join the program or they might the first week and then say, you know what, I, I don't like that level of accountability. Right. So it's a choice. And these are some privacy issues, like you said, coming back and going through the breathalyzer. They have to, you know, uh, opt in for that, <laughs> yeah. basically. I mean, you're you're fully... Uh, transparent about this. If you're going to be in our mm-hmm. program, you're going to eat together. This is something again that some people may not want to eat together. This is this is what our expectations are, and this is kind of the agreement that you make with us that you stay clean, you stay sober, sober, you uh, submit to coming in and doing the breathalyzer test, you submit to all of the rules and regulations of of quote book boot camp, and if they don't want to do it then that's their choice is what you're telling me. Am I right? Right. And, and some of that even uh, attributes to the volunteers. We, for instance, volunteering in most of our facilities, because we have children, we have the volunteers go through live scanning so that we make sure that we don't have predators you know, targeting those people that are already at risk that we're helping. So we go way out of our way to create very safe environments for people to get their lives back together again. So what you're talking about, Jim, when you say life scanning, you mean like background checks. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. It's the Nowadays, instead of traditional fingerprinting, they do this life scan where actually a scanner scans your hand. Right. And then the FBI and local authorities give any kind of feedback on, you know, uh, legal issues you might have had in a sense or criminal issues. Right. Like you and I had to do when we became sheriff reserves. We had to do the live yes, scan. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's nothing that's out of the ordinary anymore. I think churches, most everybody now requires some level of backgrounding. Well, absolutely, because you you have a lot of children there. You don't want to put them at risk. And then obviously mm-hmm. that would be your own liability. I mean, as an attorney, I can tell you, if you don't do something like that, then it could come back and be you'd be liable. And plus, you don't want anybody to get hurt. So it makes right. a lot of sense that way. So are there currently any other county or state policies that exist or should be implemented which protect the privacy of the homeless population? Well, it's a good question. Um, Right now, the federal government has required a homeless management information system, uh, which is sort of a national database they're requiring participation in. But so far, from what we can see, it does maintain the privacy and doesn't disclose information of those being assisted. So what kind of Uh, stuff do you have to put in there in that database? You know, for someone like me, I get scared to death when I heard of databases because we hear databases breaches. For a number of years, (laughs) I I fought the the same system. I mean, we, we literally, as an organization, waited four years to see what it would actually look like and work. What you you provide is some basic information on the adult individual, and then it creates a unique identifier, and that unique identifier uh, becomes sort of the case number so others don't actually interface with the personal information. Um, What they're trying to do is establish how many people are out there at risk that are receiving services, and are the services uh, duplicative? Is you know, is there are there gaps that need to be filled? Are there are too many organizations doing food and not enough doing shelter? And they're trying to track how long people stay homeless 
in a region, which in California makes some sense because people do uh, transition from one community to another based on what kind of services are available. Right. So this is a federal database, you're saying? Yeah, it's one that Congress actually required that anybody using uh, HUD funds and some other funding uh, would be required to enter data. And as our organization really doesn't use government funds, we had not reached any of those thresholds to be required to participate, uh, but instead watched as other nonprofits did participate to see if at some point it would make sense to be part of that. Well, I'm glad to hear that they're not using the social security number, that they're using a unique identifier that is other than the social security number, so that's good. But it just, who has access to that database? Do you know? Well, the unique identifier ultimately tracks all the way up to Washington, D.C., in the sense of they know that there's, whatever the numbers might be, 300,000 people that are currently in shelters and receiving these types of services. But there hasn't been any analysis at this point. So you sort of wonder, is it, is it become something that government has created for accountability but then realizes it's so big that they won't really be able to analyze anything? I think that's something we're still watching to see if uh, Congress is going to ever use the data or information for anything. Right. And, you know, right now with the economy as it is, we're seeing more and more people laid off. And Mm -hmm. unless our economy turns around, we're going to have much more people, many more people in that database. Let me ask you, do you ever get to the point where you don't have room? There are people that want to come that are willing to adhere to the, the, the objectives and the mission and you just don't have room for them? Yeah, I believe last week all the facilities were basically full. So the only time we really have room right now is if somebody's preparing to graduate mm. and then their bed or their room becomes available. Um, and it is interesting because I think we see this across the county that pretty much every bed is full. And we haven't been in a situation recently that's been like that. So I think you're right with the number of people that are becoming unemployed and the challenges that brings and and people's medical issues and things. We have a larger homeless population than we've ever seen before. We're speaking with Jim Palmer, who is the president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, the county's most comprehensive private homeless service provider. He's done tremendous work for 17 years being president of the Orange County Rescue Mission. He has been a fearless leader helping to get the beautiful uh new facility that's just been around for for two years and uh, we're we're so proud to have him here you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net I'm the host Mari Frank and we're talking about not only the privacy issues but all of the challenges that people have being homeless you know a lot of times Jim people think oh people who are homeless just don't want to work they're just lazy. You know, there is this stigma about being homeless. But why don't you tell us what, what you see? Well, there certainly are a group of people out there. Uh, there's so many different segments of the homeless. There's, for instance, veterans that have post-traumatic syndrome, let's say, over the age of 60 years old that live under the bridges. Very hard to talk them out of living under the bridges and coming into a facility. There's others that you and I see uh, on the on and off ramps taking donations from people, and 99% of the time, that's actually a scam. Oh, yeah. Um, most of the homeless, they don't want you to know they're homeless. I mean, they're very fearful of being taken advantage of. Uh, moms with kids are, are very fearful of having the children taken away. So most the, the true homeless in Orange County, for the most part, is pretty invisible. So they, they traditionally would access things like churches and police departments and schools, places they feel are safe to ask for help. Um, but I would say, you know, from my experience, that about 80% of those that you come in contact that are truly homeless, they, they really do want to establish trust with somebody and, and turn their life around. Right. But some of them have been abused so much or taken advantage of that it's very hard to establish that trust. 
I was just going to ask you about that. You know, how do you establish the trust so that the people that you work with, you know, that come into the facility, how do you build up the trust so that they feel comfortable to share their challenges and to share issues that are sensitive, like their financial and medical and, and other sensitive data? How do you get to do that? Well, it's interesting you ask that because as you saw when you toured the Village of Hope, it is more like a, a college campus. It is. Um, we have beautiful art that's been donated. The architects have gone out of their way to create an environment that feels inviting and very professional. People come and see the beauty of our facilities, and they immediately, the self-esteem raises as if you're saying, yes, we want to invite you into this. Because in the minds of many of the homeless, like everybody else, is you know, that you're going to get a bunk bed in a warehouse somewhere, and that's the way people in society value you. So when you're coming into one of our facilities, that changes dramatically. And I think uh, that's where the trust really begins, is they, you know, many times get sort of teary-eyed and say, you're kidding, I, I get to live here? Right. And, and, and you're, it's free? Somebody's paying for this? And so we share the story of who we are and we're supported by thousands of donors that believe that giving a hand up instead of the government giving a hand out is the way to go. Uh, It starts there. And then we use very professional volunteers and staff to continue that message of quality and value. And it's amazing how quick people will snap out of a poverty mentality of feeling hopelessness to all of a sudden feeling a little more control their life and that they have great hope in what they can become. You know, I love it that you have the name Village of Hope and One Hope Drive because I think our words are very powerful. You know, if we use negative words, negative things happen. If we use positive words, we create that reality. And I think what you've done by having a beautiful place, by having positive words, by having good people being very positive, very spiritual, very loving, that it, it you know, it kind of is contagious, isn't it? It really is. And in fact, it's interesting because we are considered a faith-based organization. We were primarily created through all different churches throughout Orange County and supported that way. And people look at us and say, so is it that you preach a certain religion to people? Is that what it is? And I said, no, actually, we don't have to do that because when people come in that, are, that have no hope and they see a community of formerly homeless people with all this hope, it is contagious. They're like, well, why are you smiling? Or, hey, the last time I saw you, we were sharing needles in some park. It is really contagious. I know. It is. I, I felt that as I walked around and smiled at people as I walked by. And then I had the opportunity to actually look at some of the rooms, which are really beautiful. And I noticed that some of the rooms are for, you know, that, and by the way, the children's part, the area where the children's play, play and their library. Oh, my goodness. It was just fabulous. So it looked to me and what I understood was that you focus on keeping intact families together while they're trying yes. to get their lives together instead of splitting people up, putting kids. I remember in the olden days that I used to hear about, you know, that this friend of mine from my old church said to me when she was very poor, they took her kids away from her and put them with different people. But mm-hmm. you don't do that. And so let's talk about that. And and that also brings up all sorts of privacy implications as to, you know, when the children are living at the Village of Hope. Why don't you tell us about how you keep them intact and all that? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it really started with uh, a personal issue for my wife and myself. We decided to foster children through Orangewood. And in doing so, the first two children we received were biological brothers. And uh, we had them and we said, gosh, if they don't go back to their biological parents, we should adopt them. And at the time, you weren't allowed to share that with the government you had to wait until they were separated before you could speak about adoption. Hmm. And we realized that we, we obviously adopted them. Then we got a little crack baby named Nancy and we adopted her. And then we sort of filled our house, three kids very quickly. (laughs) And we were continuing to foster and we realized, Oh my gosh, we can't adopt all of the kids. We didn't have the finances or a house big enough. And in Orange County, 
people don't have ranches like they do in uh, middle America where you could continue just to, to create beds. So we decided that we should take our House of Hope facility in Orange and focus on reunification and find those moms dealing with drug issues or alcohol issues or something that's caused the government to temporarily take the children away, help them get on their feet, and the judges will put the kids back in the families. And so we started a reunification program that now is 15 years old and has a 100% success rate at having the children put back with the moms and the moms becoming retrained and self-sufficient and creating the right kind of environment to have their children back. And we thought that would be a, a neat way to approach this challenge that's out there of uh, families being separated. Oh, that's so wonderful that they that they do that because meanwhile you're training the parents, right? You're training the mother, yes. um, at the same time and helping her w- with her parenting skills and helping her to get on her feet and being to be responsible to be able to have those kids back. I remember, you know, volunteering at at Orangewood and the Albert Sitton home, and you know, even though your parent may have abused you, you still love that parent. And, and yeah, isn't that true? No yeah, matter what the yeah. biological parent does, the kids will back them to death. It's amazing. Right, right. So if you can help them to be reunited in, in a positive way, what a what a wonderful transformation that you're doing. And like you said, you can't adopt everybody, and, and this is even better for them. You know, with this... Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say absolutely. And and the the fact that generationally you can break that generational lock on a family because when we first started, you know, we were meeting adult mothers with young children that their adult mom had been in a similar situation. So the dysfunction was being transferred from one generation to the next. Yeah. And with this long-term comprehensive approach of securing the whole family, we're able to really break that from happening with the next generation. Now, what about if they had pets or something living in the car with them? What happens to those pets? I know a lot of people feel that they don't want to go into a facility because they don't their beloved pet maybe is like their child. I mean, I know I'm a I'm a dog mother myself, <laughs> and we always mm-hmm. say, you know, our dog is is much easier to raise than our kids ever were. <laughs> so, what about that with the pets? What do you do about that? You know, it continues to be a challenge. There is no good answer yet. On the the Village of Hope, we were expecting that the county was building their new animal facility right down the street from us, and we believe they still will someday. But part of the idea was to create a partnership so the pets could go into a certain level of care while the family was. But I'm not aware of any shelters that allow pets because of the challenge of the safety of the pet and the challenge of having other people around that might have allergies and things like that. Right, right. No, I'm sure there's health issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to take a really unique facility that has almost a kennel component built into it Yeah. uh, for emergency and transitional shelter. I was just thinking about all the great things I've been reading about in the paper where you know, the, the prisons have these unwanted animals that are, you know, going to yeah. be put to death unless they get retrained. And then you've probably been reading about it in the Orange County Register about how all these prisoners have been, you know, rehabilitating the dog. But actually, the dogs have been rehabilitating the people at the same time because for the first time in their lives, they have unconditional love. So there is something about that that pet relationship and, and learning to take care of a pet and learning to be responsible. It just, you know, it would be nice in the future to have something where there could be pets there and at least people could be learning some parenting skills at the same time. Oh, absolutely. And we were really hoping that the Village of Hope was going to fit into that because initially we were told that instead of five acres, we were going to receive seven acres. And with that extra space, conceivably, we could have created like a little dog park and a a kennel component. Right. Uh, But when we ended up with only five acres, there wasn't, as you probably saw in your tour, there's no extra space. No, there isn't. And it's beautiful the way you have it set up. There is, you know, is there any room around you for anybody to donate some more? I'm trying to think. Over by you is is also the the sheriff's uh, training facility, not too far. But I'm yeah, not... and all the vacant land 
belongs to the Orange County Community College District that's oh. building an advanced education program. Oh, I now, see. by the time it's created, who knows, there might be an animal component. Over near the Sheriff's Academy is where they're discussing building the future uh, animal facility for the County of Orange. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And maybe there could be a component of that that we could place an animal temporarily there. Right. We're we're speaking now with the Honorable Jim Palmer, who is the president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, the the county's most comprehensive and I would have to say most beautiful private homeless shelter, and they provide all sorts of services for the homeless and really give them a hand up rather than a handout, which is I know your your mission. Jim, when we're talking about healthcare, for example, um, I know you have a low-cost and no-cost medical clinic for homelessness. Now, yes. uh, do people who aren't at the mission, are they able to come to this clinic too, or is it only for... Yes. Oh, so how does that work? About 10,000 of them do. Wow. Um, yeah, we have a sliding fee scale for those that aren't homeless but are without health care. And we have a very large focus on diabetes. There's a number of uh, young people through pediatric diabetes and adults that don't have the financial capacity to treat diabetes. So we help them through that with different grants. We do mammograms uh, for women that don't have the financial capacity uh, to go out and have that done. So we have some really unique things that we do. But uh, a majority of those we help through our clinics are not homeless. Hmm, interesting. And then the people who are living at the Village of Hope actually do have the the health and the health care for them at no cost, right? Yes, that's correct. In fact, everything that we're providing at the Village of Hope for those in the program is at no cost because they they don't have an income or any source of income. We certainly don't want them to be on welfare. Now, do they, when they've been there for a while, are they starting, I know they take classes and they get training. Do they actually do some work there? I mean, do they do something yeah. in exchange? They, I, I saw people working like in the cafeteria, and I didn't know if they were outside volunteers or inside volunteers. How does all that work? Well, what happens is as soon as you join our program, all the adults the next day, they're assigned a full-time vocational job training opportunity. Hmm. And it could be driving a forklift. It could be in the food services team, the child development team. And they're assigned that job for three to six months so that they develop the skills that are necessary if they were to then go into that profession once they leave. And, I mean, we have everything from landscaping to those working on maintenance and electrical and painting, all those good things. So they're immediately put into that. And then in the evenings or sometimes during the day, they break into group therapy, counseling, go see, do their medical visits and things like that. But that's sort of why we call it a boot camp. It's because similar to the military, you have your job and training happening simultaneously. Right, right. And do they do any of them go on and go back to school to get more, like you yeah. said? You, yeah, okay. How does that work? We actually, uh, the community college that's developing around us has a small campus next door. And we had 18 of our, we call them students that live at the Village of Hope, as college students across the street taking classes for the last three months. So we do integrate into the community college system for those that need additional education. Well, isn't that convenient that they're right there? You can almost it walk is. there. <laughs> That's terrific. And Irvine Valley College and ATEP, they've been so gracious in working with us to create successful programs. Right, because the people, a lot of them don't have cars, do they, anymore? I mean, Right, and, and we want to encourage them to have a car when they're in our program because they have no source of income, so you, they couldn't pay for insurance and things like that. So they wouldn't have a car while they're living here. So are there vans that take them around if they need to go to school, like Irvine Valley College? Yes, and buses. Oh. Um, we, we provide um, bus cards and for many of the singles, they'll actually use the buses to get around. It's a little trickier for those with children that need to take the children, so we'll provide them with transportation or volunteers will help them. And we're always looking, for instance, for volunteers to take people to specialized medical visits and things like that. Right. 
So when you're talking about the medical visits, you have doctors that are on staff or you have doctors that come in or how does that work? Well, it started with all volunteer, but as it grew, you know, we went from seeing uh, six people a day to 70 people a day. And we actually went out and were able to receive some good grants that allowed us to hire full-time doctor, medical director, nurses, medical assistants. We even have a dentist on staff. Wow. So how does Medicaid work or Medicare? Does that kick in for anybody there? Some of it is what they call third-party billing. So if we assist somebody that qualifies like a veteran for health care, we can then ask for reimbursement from, from that the program. VA. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So speaking about medical care, and we know right now there we've got the, the HIPAA laws and all these privacy laws, um, what are some of the privacy issues that you encounter when you're dealing with diagnosis of the homeless? Uh, do you have to report that as well? Uh, no, no. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with any, any legal kind of reporting on someone's status. It's, it's sort of the opposite, which is interesting because there are clinics you could go to or doctors and, and they might get confused on what to report and over-report in a sense. Since we specialize with this population, our staff knows that the, the focus is on the care of the person and not the paperwork, in a sense. And using electronic medical records allows us to lessen duplication, not have errors and things like that from transposing information from one source to another. So we can spend most of the time and energy putting together uh, a a case management file for someone's health care. And we have wonderful institutions like Hogue Hospital and others that are sort of like our big brothers, and they assist us with levels of care that we're not able to provide, and we're able to do so in a transparent way without having security and information risks of someone's health care profile getting into the wrong hands. How about relationships? Do people end up in relationships? You've got single men there and single women there. How does that work? I mean, is there any concern? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I would think people might fall in love there. They're happy. They're, they have hope. They meet each other. How does that work? Well, we ask them to uh, do that once they graduate. But yes, <laughs> it, it has happened. We've had people get married once they both graduate. Um, and we're okay with that just as long as it isn't happening while they're in the boot camp phase of the program. Wow. How do you keep that from happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough thing, you know. Uh, People originally said, Jim, you're crazy to have men, women, and children all in the same site. But what I learned was through the years, they're still going to find each other. Exactly. When when they they go on passes outside of facilities, well, they're going to go find their other friends and things like that. So we thought we would take the risk and do it all in one facility, supervise and coach people on the right way to handle things. And we've had great success at it so far. So what do you think our listeners would find the most surprising thing to learn about the Orange County Rescue Mission? Well, I think really that those that we're helping are not a lot different than themselves or their neighbors. I, I meet people every day that are in our programs that, that have a master's degree, that have bachelor's degrees, that have uh, had incredible successes in their life, but a couple things went really wrong and had led them into this homeless situation that homelessness is no longer the Caucasian 65-year-old male that's dealing with alcohol. It's, you know, your 18-year-old son or daughter or uh, a young man or woman emancipating out of the child. A dependency system, or it's a 30-year-old mom with kids that, you know, lost employment, had a medical issue, wiped them out. Right. I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, I heard some very high statistics for the people who who filed bankruptcy, and it was mostly due to medical issues, that they just were mm-hmm. wiped out when someone got cancer or some other horrible disease, and they just, you know got credit up to the hilt and refinanced their house or got a credit line and spent it all for health care for someone and then had to file bankruptcy. So I don't think people realize that some major crisis could throw them into homelessness and it could happen to me and it could happen to anyone. 
And I think that that is something that people don't realize. No, they don't, but I think we're all seeing more of it. I think if we've all either been exposed to a family member or a friend or a neighbor or somebody, or if we haven't, we will soon because of the challenges within this economy. So what are the most urgent needs of the Orange County Rescue Mission right now? Well, they're, they're really two, monetary and non-monetary. So there's always a need for cash to pay utility bills and, and to pay for certain things that we can't get donated. And then the other large areas, we call it non-monetary, gifting kind, is, is food and labor. Uh, people donating food to us to help feed people. And then uh, people like yourself that come in and say, I have this skill, I want to volunteer this skill. Uh, the way in which we're able to keep our overhead extremely low is that a majority of our staff are all volunteers. They're not even paid. And it's, it's people right here in Orange County that say one day a week or one day a month, I want to come in and provide this service. So let's say there are people who are on the campus, because you know we're on the campus, many students want to do something and get involved with their community. We have business people driving by in Newport Beach, Irvine. Let's say that our listeners want to get involved and they want to give to the Orange County Rescue Mission with any of the different ways, whether it be mm-hmm. monetarily or they want to volunteer their time. Uh, where do they go? What do they do? How do they get started? Well, the best thing for them to do is to sign on to the website, rescuemission.org, and go straight to volunteering, and we list many job descriptions and needs that we have. The, the other areas with the students at UCI, on the healthcare side, we have a, a relationship with UCI Medical Center in which they have a day a week that they actually provide a medical clinic using our facility. So there's an easy way for those that are involved on the medical side to get involved. Those that aren't, there's still skills we could use. We could, social ecology students could help us analyze our performance and how we're helping people and doing some of the statistical analysis that we need to do as an organization. Uh, There's those in food service or health that can plug into the whole food service operation we have, which we provide nearly a million meals a year. There's so many ways that people can take their passion and their skills and and plug right in with us. Well, do you have also, um, so you said on your website you have listed the kind of volunteers. Do you also have listed the kinds of foods that you need for people? You know, this in the holiday season, people can bring things over. Do you have, okay? Yeah, we we put up sort of a, a needs list or urgent needs, and people can always click on that. It's right on the main page. And it starts out with, uh, you know, the food, miscellaneous items, paper products. Um, it, it's also broken down by all our different facilities because some people say, you know what, I, I live in Orange and I really want to help something in my neighborhood, so I'll go over to the House of Hope. And, and so, yes, we have an entire list on the website. So people who do want to volunteer need to know that they will also have, like you said, a live scan. So if they're going to actually volunteer there, they need to get some kind of a background check to make sure that they're going to be safe and that the people that are at the facility are going to be safe. Is that correct? It is, and and it's free with us. A lot of places you go now, you have to pay a fee to go do that. We actually are authorized by the uh, Department of Justice to do it here on site. So there's no cost, but there is ultimately... Uh, that background check once they fill out the application. Jim, you've been in the field of working with people who are in desperate need for now, what, oh, so many, many years since you're a little kid, uh-huh. but especially as, as president for the past 17 years. What do you, if you had your druthers and you had a magic wand, what would you like to see happen in our society that maybe could help to make it easier for these people? Well, we definitely have a capacity issue. We need much more housing. We need more facilities like the Village of Hope uh, placed in each community. Right now, we only have a handful, but we have 34 cities. Each city needs to have some kind of a hub that people can go to for help so they don't have to leave their community when they're in need. And I think people would rally in every community around such a hub if we were able to create uh, a local solution to needs versus 
uh, relying on our federal government to try to figure it out. Exactly. Now, do you have, since you have such a wonderful program there, um, do, do other programs come to you and say, look, you're a great model. Will you teach us how to do what you're doing? Do you, do you actually get that? Yes. Yeah, and it's something we're real transparent about. We provide to these organizations all of our information and data at no cost to, to hopefully help them replicate We've got one down in Florida right now that's replicating what we do, and we've had a few in Northern California. We've actually had delegations from both China and Egypt come out specifically to see the Village of Hope program. Well, I'm just thinking because our show airs nationally. People, I mean, I get emails from people from actually all over the country as well as outside of our country. So I'm thinking those who are listening who don't live in Orange County, California, and live on the East Coast or the Midwest that they also can set up a program very similar to yours. And as you said, where can they find out that information? Is it on your website or should they contact you? They can all start on the website, which is really easy. It's just rescuemission.org. And we actually publish almost all our information on that website so people can get our business plans and annual reports, all those good things. And then if they need additional assistance, we've got some phone numbers listed on there and who to contact. Well, let me ask you, if what would you like our community and our actually our, our country, uh, anybody who's listening, to know so that they could be more helpful to people who are in need like that? What would you like to suggest to them that they could do in their own small way? Well, really to get involved locally with uh, a rescue mission or facility helping, because if we keep the solution in the private sector, there's a 15 times leverage, and what that means is if, if we can help, for instance, a family get back together again in a safe environment, we'll save a tremendous amount of money from what would have happened with the children going into dependency and the parents having to deal with the legal system and all of those things. We're much better off if we can address these things locally and quickly And so it could be as simple as doing a food drive in your neighborhood and then taking the food to the organization and seeing how they use it and maybe getting involved as a volunteer at that point. Well, we think you are wonderful. You are our Orange County hero. And we will have you back again to find out all the good things that you're doing when you get the. I know you're going to be doing more and more exciting things as the years go by. So we want to thank you for joining us. And we uh, will continue to support all, all your great work. So thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We were just speaking with Jim Palmer, who is the president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, a guy with a heart and a head and just really does, who does such wonderful work. Please join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit us at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And you can download a podcast there. You can listen to archived interviews, see our upcoming guests, and also write us about what's important to you. What do you want to know about in the issues of privacy in the information age? Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Sanford Otsuji, who is Chief Senior Chaplain with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And he's been with the department as a volunteer for 10 years. In his professional life, he is the executive director of the foundation Olive Crest, which provides homes and services for abused children. Thank you, Sandy, for joining us. Thank you, Mari, for having me. Why don't you tell us what the chaplain program at the Orange County Sheriff Department is really about? Well, first of all, the chaplain program started 23 years ago in Orange County and actually in San Clemente. 
and has branched out throughout Orange County uh, with the Sheriff's Department. And the chaplains are primarily ministers who are, are ordained or they're licensed or commissioned, and they supply spiritual help and partnership with the deputies as they ride along with them and are called when they need it in the crisis situation. And what is your role as the senior chaplain? My role is to oversee the program, which has 25 chaplains that serve all of the cities in the Sheriff's Department's area, and that is throughout Orange County. We're going to talk more about this program and specifically what you all do as chaplains very soon in our next segment. So thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. 